Well, good morning again. It's great to see you. Glad you're with us. And if, uh, if you are a graduate, graduating, maybe you just graduated, uh, we are well, we, we're glad you're here. We want to say welcome. We're proud of you. It's a season of graduation. UNC and NC State last weekend, Central, North Carolina Central and Duke this weekend. High school graduation is coming up. And so uh, we will uh, miss those who are graduating and leaving, and we're proud of you. We're excited to see where God sends uh, those of you who, who are leaving from here. And this morning, we are continuing in a series that we started a few weeks ago in the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. Revelation chapters 2 to 3, these are Jesus' direct words to these individual seven churches. He, he is letting them and he's letting us know what he thinks about the church. Uh, the first week we saw Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus, and it was a church that was committed to right theology. They were a church busy giving and serving, but they were a church that had forsaken. They had drifted away from their first love, the Lord Jesus. And then we heard Jesus speak to the church in Smyrna. Uh, this was a church that was suffering because of their faith in Christ, a church that was pledging allegiance to Jesus over the Roman Empire, and because of that suffering resulted. This morning we turned to the church in Pergamum, and this church in Pergamum had, had, had heard these other letters read to Ephesus and Smyrna, and so they were kind of in the know what Jesus was thinking about Ephesus and Smyrna. It, it'd be kind of fun to know what Jesus thinks about other churches, wouldn't it? Like, what if Jesus told us what he thought about First Baptist downtown Durham? What, what would Jesus think about Trinity Methodist or uh, St. Joseph's A&E. It, it'd be kind of fun to hear what Jesus might think about these churches, to be in the know. But it's a little different when the risen Jesus, the one in Revelation chapter 1 says, whose mouth is a sharp two-edged sword and whose face shines like the sun in full strength, speaks directly to us. And so this morning, Jesus speaks directly to the church in Pergamum. And what does he say to them? What might Jesus want to say to us, Christ Central Church? How would Jesus describe us? And so I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able to read God's Word together. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, we stand to give our attention to the one who speaks directly to us. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has, a hear, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, would you come and speak to us by your Spirit? Speak it to our spirit. Lord, you know where we are. You know us. You know this church, Christ Central. You know where we are individually. And so we need you to come and speak in a way that only you can. So would you remove 
me and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you and this morning soften our hearts open our ears Lord open our eyes to behold the goodness of Jesus it's in your name we pray amen, amen. you can have a seat so Rachel my wife and a few other women went to a, a worship evening a few weeks ago uh, they went to a night of worship at Carter Finley Stadium, just down the road in Raleigh. They went and they worshiped at the feet of the Queen Bee. Uh, they went to the Beyonce concert uh, a couple weeks ago, and, and Rachel said it was one of the most powerful, emotional concerts she's ever been to, uh, that the atmosphere truly was one of worship towards Beyonce, that it was so emotional because Beyonce's newest album, which I had not listened to, but she uh, informed me uh, the title Lemonade is about mostly her affair, the affair her husband Jay-Z had on her, uh, and the pain and the hurt, the betrayal, the sadness for Beyonce. And, and so this, this performance was a, a very raw, emotional performance. And she sings in her song, Praying You Catch Me, nothing seems to hurt like the smile on your face. She's singing it to Jay-Z. Nothing seems to hurt like the smile on your face. The smile that once delighted in her, she now knew was a smile being used to hide an affair. And so she sings, nothing seems to hurt like the smile on your face. Affairs don't just happen overnight. Affairs are little steps over a period of time that then lead to a big step. Affairs happen because things get more difficult than expected. It begins in the heart and in the eyes and in the mind, and then it leads to full-blown action. Infidelity of the heart. An affair of the heart can lead to unfaithfulness in our living. Those of us who are Christians, the Bible says that we've been united in this covenant love relationship that the Bible describes as a marriage. We've been married to Jesus. And so let's be honest this morning. We like to be honest here at Christ Central. Life is hard, isn't it? Life is hard, which is why we see people turn to addictions and to numbing mechanisms just to cope with life. The relationship, a relationship with God can be hard, Right? That's why we see people turn away from God and do life on their own. And I will say being a pastor and being in ministry is hard, which is why we see many pastors falling into moral failure. Life is hard. I love the hymn, Come Thou Fount. We sung it at our wedding. We'll sing it after the sermon to end this service. And in the hymn, we sing, Prone to Wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. My own heart is prone to wonder. The affair of the heart is tempting, and we can be tempted to smile and act like life is good and that things with God are good, but the smiles on our face are just ways for us to hide. And Jesus says, I know. In each of these letters, he says, I know you. I know you, Pergamum. Jesus knows us, Christ Central Church. He knows each one of you personally. And it hurts him deeply when we wander away because he loves us so much. And so this morning, I want to talk about being faithful. Fidelity to Christ. 
We've got to start by looking at this city, Pergamum. It was one of the largest cities in all of Asia Minor. It had the largest library in all of Asia, meaning Pergamum was a well-educated city, a place of ideas, a place that was welcome to a plurality of beliefs and religions and thoughts. It was the center of emperor worship. It was also a place of deep pagan worship. Outside the city of Pergamum was this altar to Zeus that stood 800 feet looking down upon the city. There's also a, a great temple built to the God of healing. And on this, God of, this temple of the God of healing was a large serpent. A serpent still assembled today for healing. And, and for all of these reasons that I just described in Pergamum, is why Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. See, Pergamum was a place where the serpent Satan had entwined itself into society. It was a place of darkness in many ways. Yet some of the Christians had proven to remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of this culture. Antipas mentioned the faithful witness was killed because of his faith in Christ. Living faithfully in a culture that is in opposition to Jesus can be difficult. I love, I love our city, Durham. I love it. It's a place of immense education, a place of ideas, a place of plurality of, of religions and thoughts and beliefs. It's a place of tolerance and intolerance at the same time. And it can be hard to live in the city to know how to faithfully live. Now, I don't think being faithful means we despise the culture of our city. Christians are not meant to be culture despisers. We never retreat from the culture. We are to see the beauty and the brokenness that, ex that exists within our culture here in Durham, as we would in any culture. Every culture has beauty and brokenness. Now, I have, I have to be honest. In many ways, I love cultures that are not hyper-Christian. <laughs> Places that don't create Christian subcultures. I, I grew up in the Deep South and lived in a city and attended a university where most people would tell you they were a Christian, even if they weren't. You just, that's what you said. And if I'm honest, I, that got old to me after a while. And, and one of the things I love about Durham is that it's a place where you can be honest about your faith or your lack of faith. There's no pressure here to say you're a Christian if you're not a Christian. While at the same time, Living in the Deep South, being a Christian was easier in ways. You weren't an outcast if you were a Christian. Many people b believed the same thing, had the same values and the same views. That's not always the case here in Durham. You can be put on the outside for being a Christian, for your beliefs or for your values. And so while we're not to be Christian or culture despisers, we are not to be culture imitators either. As Christians, there is to be a distinctiveness about the way we live, about our beliefs, about our values. Missionary C.T. Studd captures, I think, the boldness that must have been a feature of this church here in Pergamon when he said of himself, some people want to live within the sound of church or chapel bells, but I want to build a rescue shop within a yard of hell. So Pergamon was a place of darkness, yet many faithfully lived and held fast to Jesus so I want us to look at what does faithfulness look like for us? I'm not equating Pergamum and Durham one-to-one, -one, but I am saying there's some, there's some relationship. And so what does faithfulness for us look like? Let's look first that it means faithfulness to the truth. 
This is how Jesus encourages the church. He says, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. So the name of Christ stands for Jesus himself. They are holding fast to Jesus. Christianity is founded and built upon the truth of Jesus Christ. The truth that God became man, lived among us perfectly without sin, died a death on the cross to take away the sins of the world, to reconcile all things broken unto himself. He rose victoriously, sits at the right hand of God, ruling over all things. In Jesus, God came to man. God saves man. God redeems and restores all that is broken. Jesus is the hero and the author of salvation. This is what makes Christianity different than every other religion or thought in the world. Every other idea, every other religion, every other belief has some form of self-rescue or self-salvation. Christianity alone is grace alone, faith alone in Christ alone. God saves us. We were helpless and he redeemed us. Holding fast to Jesus' name means trusting Christ as Savior and Lord. He's Savior, the one we owe our redemption and rest in Him for salvation. He's Lord, the one we owe our obedience of our lives in joyful surrender. See, Jesus is encouraging Pergamum. He's saying, you are Christ-centered. Be encouraged. Now, it is easy for a church, and even our church, Christ-central, to become centered upon things besides Jesus. Whether that be some specific theological view that you're excited to to talk about or some political view that you hold tightly to or some cultural view that all of a sudden you're passionate about, it is easy to minimize the central, the Lord Jesus, and magnify the peripheral. It's very easy for that to happen within the church. Rupert Meldini has said in the 17th century that we must preserve unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and charity in all things. Now, I often use an analogy of a baseball diamond to describe the church. It's a baseball diamond. You have first base, second base, third base. That Within the church, there are first base beliefs and issues. There are second base and third base, right? You can't play the game if you never get to first base. So first base is the most important. And first base for the church, for Christianity, is the person and the work of Jesus. There is no compromising Christ. We must be faithful to the truth of His name, Savior and Lord. This church was being faithful in this way. So Jesus speaks a good word, a word that brings life. But this is a word that's two-edged, the text tells us. So now he brings a word of judgment upon this church. Look at verses 14. But I have this against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Not only is faithfulness to the truth, Faithfulness is in the holiness of our lives. We can say things all day long and say what we believe all day long, but you know what people will remember us by is by the way we live our lives. So there has to be a faithfulness in our living. So look at that with me. The teaching of Balaam, teaching of the Nicolaitans, they they must have been similar. 
uh, we know that it was a teaching that was a stumbling block, something that caused Christians in Pergamum to veer away from Jesus. Verses 14 to 15 is pretty clear. Some Christians in Pergamum were being seduced away from Jesus by food and by sex. Let's look a little bit more into what makes that so seductive. See, these teachers were allowing Christians in Pergamum to eat without concern. They could go into any temple, any pagan temple, and eat and dine as they pleased. They had freedom to do as they wanted with their appetite. And the Christians were being told that the spirit and the body were separate, and that the body didn't matter, therefore they were free to do whatever they wanted to do sexually. You see, they were being taught here the, the, the Snickers commercial. Are you hungry? Satisfy your hunger. Satisfy your appetite. Satisfy your sexual appetite. See, sin is it's about more than this, but in some basic form, sin is about pleasure. It's about having our appetite satisfied. And Durham knows a little something about food and a little something about sex, don't, don't we? We love our food in Durham. We're a foodie city. We're a sexualized city. We're a city that we want to be free as we can to do as we please. Our appetites, our pursuit of pleasure, our desire to have our immediate needs met now in our timing is what can take us away from relationship with God. Food, sex, but it can be many other things. It can be alcohol, drugs, money, power. Just to name a few, these things can be seductive and lead us away from Christ. Tim Keller describes sin as an exit ramp. That holiness and relationship with God, union with Jesus is, is driving down, living life on the highway of fellowship with God. That that's holiness. And that sin is veering off onto the exit ramp. In college, I went on a road trip with my then roommate, Adam Deo, and I didn't know that Adam loved road tripping. The man loved it. And one thing I didn't know was that he loved it because he loved stopping at gas stations uh, and taking like an hour at the gas station. And he would go in and literally, you know, they got the rack of hats and some of these like pilots or, or BPs. And he would be like trying on hats and playing with the toys. And I'm like, dude, hurry up. We got to go. And wasting time figuring out which candy he wants. And he, he just gets, he got sidetracked from our final destination. See, sin is the exit ramp, sidetracking us from walking with God and being focused on our final destination of life with Him. Sin is more than just appetite, though. Sin is really an affair of the heart. Sin entices us because it taps into something much deeper than just mere appetite. Look back again in our passage. The food here being sacrificed to idols uh, in Pergamum was a way for the Christians to be invited into fellowship with others there in the city. I mean, think about it. Howard, Howard said this last week, but when someone invites you to a meal with them, it's more than just eating food. It's about inviting you into relationship with them, right? When you eat at a table, you're, you're entering into relationship. And so what the, these pagan teachers were teaching the Christians or saying to the Christians was come and be in relationship with us, be in fellowship with us with us. They were being seduced away from Christ because they were being offered fellowship when perhaps they felt extremely lonely. And sex also 
is about much more than appetite, right? I mean, our bodies are connected to our souls. We, we deeply believe that the, body, the Bible teaches that we are connected beings, body, soul, spirit, that our bodies matter and that our bodies shape our souls and our spirit. Sex is about intimacy. Sexuality is about our identity. And some of the Christians in Pergamum, like we can be, were being seduced away from Christ because they were being offered intimacy and identity when perhaps they felt unknown and insecure. But with all of the promises of sin, all of its glittering, all of its instant gratification, sin actually does the very opposite of what it promises. It ultimately leaves us hungry and lonely. Jesus speaks to Pergamum, and he speaks to us as the one with a two-edged sword, meaning his words can save us if we listen or his, or his words will judge us if we don't. Jesus says, repent, church. Repent. Now, when you hear that, I don't want you to envision Jesus as some angry drill sergeant. Jesus yelling at you to get your act together. Repent. That Jesus is ashamed of you in some way when, he, when he's de- demanding you repent. I want you to envision Jesus saying, as the faithful bridegroom saying, come back to me. I am here, though you all left me, as we sang earlier. Come back to me, I am here, and I give you what your heart longs for, what you most desperately need. When we take the exit ramp and we seek to satisfy our appetite or our heart's longings apart from him, when we smile and we try to act like everything is good, it hurts Jesus. It hurts him because he knows. He knows our hearts. And he stands faithful. He stands faithful and he promises two things in this passage to us who believe in Christ. The first thing he promises is hidden manna. God promises to provide for us. As he did with Israel as they wandered in the wilderness providing manna from heaven, God promises hidden manna. Meaning he will take care of us. He will will meet the immediate needs in his way. And he will give us what we long for deeply, fellowship. He promises deep relationship, a fellowship with himself of love and joy and peace. He promises a relationship that deeply satisfies the hunger of our hearts. Not just hidden manna, but he also promises a white stone. The white stone, what what is that? When I, when I was a freshman in college, I rushed a fraternity, and, and I was looking to be offered a bid. It's an invitation, right, a bid to join this fraternity. What I did not know was that this fraternity that I wanted to join and ultimately did join had a distinct process of voting for those to receive a bid. Uh, and so speeches were given for the potential rushee who wanted a bid, and, and then a box was passed around the whole fraternity, and everybody had to either drop a white ball in the box meaning yes, or you dropped a black ball in the box, meaning no. In our fraternity, one black ball meant you couldn't receive a bid. It had to be unanimous. This is a process that many have used. I'm sure you've heard the term blackballed. To be blackballed means you got left out. You were not invited in. You didn't get an invitation. Verse 17, Jesus gives us a white stone. 
an invitation, a welcome, saying, I want you and I want you with me. And not only is it a white stone, it's a white stone with a new name. Don't pass over that. It's a new name. Every person at this party is given a personalized new name, meaning God knows each one of us deeply, personally, and uniquely, providing intimacy and identity. Christ provides what our hearts most desperately long for, fellowship and intimacy. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our struggles and our failures and our fears and our frailties. He knows you. There is a banquet that awaits us in heaven. There is a wedding party that will last for eternity, a feasting of fellowship and an intimate welcome. And our hearts can be seduced. Unfaithfulness to the one who has redeemed us is often a reality more often than we care to admit. Even so, Jesus willingly and lovingly went to a dark place, to the gates of hell, and to hell itself, and to the cross. And so when we offer that smile as we go through life, we have to look to the cross. It was a place of darkness that Jesus entered entered on our behalf. And on the cross, the fellowship that Jesus had with his Father and the Spirit was torn apart. On the cross, Jesus hung lonely and hurting. On the cross, he experienced the guilt and shame of the world. With joy, Jesus endured the cross because he knew what it would offer and what it would accomplish. Eternal fellowship, intimacy, identity for all who trust him as the Christ. Church, the cross is the truth. It's the truth. It's the proof that we have one who is faithful, whose heart breaks over our sin, who longs for us to come back and to provide what we most deeply desire. He knows you. He knows us, church. Would you let Jesus provide for you this morning? Would you taste of him? Would you let him meet you personally and intimately? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would do just that. Um, Church this size, and I know there are many here that feel like you don't understand and that you don't know, but you do. Many here who have a view of you that's the, the stern, angry God So would you soften our hearts and draw us back to yourself? Would would we see that you're faithful even when we're faithless? You remain faithful. You cannot deny yourself. Thank you that we're in you, Lord Jesus, by faith. We trust you. Help us to live faithful as we trust in you, the faithful one. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.